Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have the opportunity now to look into thy word together. We ask for thy presence to be with us now and for thy spirit to be among us, that he would be our teacher. We know that we know the Son through the Spirit, and through the Son we see the Father. And so, Heavenly Father, we would ask now that thou wouldst reveal our, thyself to us through thy Son and by thy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the basis of this morning's meditation, please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Matthew, chapter 7. I'd like to begin reading with the 13th verse, Matthew 7, starting from verse 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns, or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. I've read till the end of the chapter. Let's kneel for prayer. Dear Father in heaven, 
as we bow before thee this morning hour to petition thee and to present ourselves before thee, dear Father. We acknowledge that thou art a holy, perfect God, and we also acknowledge that we have just read the words of thy Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the one who came here, clothed himself in flesh as a man, just like each one of us, and bore witness of the truth, who spoke words that are not easy to read, that are not easy to hear, but words that we need to hear, and sealed that witness, that testimony with his own blood. Dear Father, we thank thee for this grace that has been poured out. We who all on our own are, are wicked can bring forth no good fruit, are corrupt, are gone out of the way. Each one of us, we know within ourselves, of ourselves, of our fallen fleshly nature, nothing good would come. All the striving we could do, we could never enter in. But dear Father, we're so thankful for Jesus Christ in whose name we are praying these things now and whose uh, high priestly uh, role and, and, and the promise of, of, of what he has done and who he is and where he is now, on that basis that we can now approach thee and we can read these words and we can realize these are words of life. These are not words of condemnation, but they're words to wake up the slumbering to help us see that there is death all around us and there can be death within us if we are not connected to thee, if we are not a part of the vine, if we are not bringing forth good fruit as children of thine. Dear Father, we are so thankful for this good day of grace. Another day we've been given, dear Father. We don't know what tomorrow brings. We don't know how many more days we have. But here and now is a day of grace, a day to proclaim thy word, to, to accept it in our hearts, to, to let ourselves become that good ground that brings forth the right fruit. To build on that rock, Jesus Christ, so that when the storms come, we will not be moved. To pare away, to let, to let go of those things, to turn away from the easy way, and to walk that straight, narrow way, that road that leads to eternity with thee. Dear Father, we are thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful for this good land in which we live, that we can freely still proclaim these things, that the doors of this church are open, that whosoever will may come. Dear Father, this is not a light thing. It's, it's, we've had just a taste of, of, of difficulties and restrictions with, with being prevented to gather because of health reasons. And uh, we realize that the future may bring opposition from those in authority. So, dear Father, we pray for them. We pray as thy children, as the ones who've been given the responsibility to intercede, to lift up holy hands, dear Father. We pray for them, for those that are in authority, those that are in those positions of power to make those decisions. Help them to see, dear Father, that they give an account to thee, that each one of them personally will stand before the judge of all the earth. They will have to give an account whether they have walked on that way that is pleasing to thee. So, dear Father, we intercede for them and we intercede for all those in this country that are under their authority. Dear Father, we pray for those in distant lands that are proclaiming this word in difficulty and in dire straits. 
Dear Father, we pray for the furtherance of thy gospel, that thy will would be done, that thy kingdom would come in all of the earth, in our hearts and all over this world. Dear Father, we pray for those that are sick, those that are experiencing failing bodies and, and whose uh, trials in this flesh are weighing down on their spirit and maybe causing them to stumble in their faith. Dear Father, help them to look up, to see that their help comes from the hills, that their, their assurance of salvation is what really matters, that, the, that though, though this body perishes, dear Father, what they have in thee is the most valuable thing. Give them that calmness and that peace and that assurance first and foremost, and then we pray also for healing for them, dear Father, according to thy will. As we pray this, we acknowledge even the power of these weak prayers, the power that is from thee, the Father who delights to give his children good gifts. We know the power of answered prayer, dear Father. We believe this, not according to our merit, not because we say special things, dear Father, but because we pray to a God who hears and delights to answer the prayers of his children. So we thank thee for that, too. Dear Father, now as we turn to this word and, and meditate upon it, we pray, dear Father, we acknowledge, first of all, that each one of us needs to take this for ourselves that each one of us needs to humble ourselves under this word, to ask ourselves, to search within ourselves, how are we receiving it? What are we doing with it? Dear Father, help us to do that. We know it is as we humble ourselves, that us pour out grace. Grace can be experienced, it can be had in this hour. Dear Father, we pray for the brother that is to proclaim this word. Be with him, strengthen him, give him the courage and the boldness and the zeal to proclaim this word in this good, acceptable day of the Lord. Amen. I remember back in high school, in math class, Uh, I was never particularly great at math. I did do well in my senior year through a lot of effort. But uh, I remember being giving, given theorems, right? Uh, ways to obtain an answer by plugging in variables. And I dutifully banged them into my head, memorized them so that I could do the problems. But I didn't think much about them. It wasn't actually until much later, but really I think when I was doing either work around the house or trying to figure things out that I, I stopped and started to think a little bit more about the genius of that ancient Greek guy, Pythagoras, who came up with this neat little formula that allowed me to calculate the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle which was useful in everyday life. I was trying to lay out a square corner and I could put in those variables and do that. And I, I realized that while I was in school learning those things, I, I didn't really stop to think too much about what it must have been like to discover a formula like that for the first time. I kind of glossed over it. It was just something to memorize from the, from the textbooks and that was it for me. And 
I would like us now, with the Lord's help, when we consider the chapter we've read together, try to put yourself in the shoes of those who are hearing this for the first time, these teachings. I think we're in great danger of just simply glossing over the teachings of Christ and not realizing the genius with which he taught. I mentioned a number of weeks ago when I was up here at the pulpit that the great teachers have always been characterized by, by brevity. Sayings or formula that were compact but, but marvelous in the way that they were compacted together. When you thought about either the saying or, or looked at the formula, what it allowed you to do, there was power there. And Christ's teachings, the great teachers, of course, of, of world history, but especially Christ when he came, this characterized his teaching. We have many of his words recorded, recorded, but Luke says not even all the books of the world could contain everything. But these nuggets we have, these, these formulas, if you will, that we can, we can look at, we can examine, and if we were to put ourselves in the shoes of those or in the sandals of those, I guess, who heard this for the first time, what impact would this have had on you? Think about them fresh. We have really one just brief sentence here for those that may be curious and students of the English language. You may wonder why in the Bible we have these long, long sentences in the New Testament. It's very simply because in Greek the, the sentence construction is such that they are very long and the translators preserved the length of the thought the way that it was recorded in the Greek. So uh, we would have called them, of course, run-on sentences in English. but. Though the sentences are long, there's, they're, they're one thought, so stick with the thought. I'm going to reread verses 13 and 14 one more time. Enter ye in at the straight gate, that's the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, or narrow is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Sobering thoughts. Few. Think about that word for a moment. Many versus few. Many, the majority. Few, the minority. How few is few? And then more importantly, am I one of those few? These two verses, actually, were the basis on which the Reformers and the Anabaptists parted company. It sounds a bit odd. But in the Reformers' vision, the church was still to be universal in the sense that everyone was to belong to the church. It was to be a, uh, a universal body where the entire populace was to be Christian. Uh, infant baptism would be uh, practiced to accomplish this. And then within the reformers, if you wanted to pursue a greater degree of holiness, you were welcome to it. But the Anabaptists said, no, no, that's not what we read from Christ. Christ said, few. Narrow is the gate. 
And the Anabaptist said, and still narrower is the way. All those that find the gate may not end up walking on the way. This is something that has been lost, I think, in a good portion of Christianity today. The teaching of the narrow gate is still given. You will hear from, I would dare say, the vast majority of preachers that Jesus is the only way. But that's only part of it. Narrow is the gate, but narrow is the way as well. And what do you do with that? Because there, there, I think we see where our spiritual forebearers parted company with other people that called themselves Christians. Narrow is the way. I've recently reread uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. I mentioned that not that long ago as well. <clears throat> and there, it begins with the gate, but that's not where the story ends. There's still much that comes after that. And there is a, a lot of attention given by the writer to this narrow way and staying on this narrow way and the dangers that would seek to draw us off of the narrow way, that in the narrow way there was safety, but to depart from the narrow way brought danger and could even bring disaster. A good beginning is not enough. That way leads somewhere. It's not enough to simply go through a gate. We then have to travel along the narrow way until we reach that heavenly kingdom. We didn't sing all the verses, of course, of 106, but I'd just like to read one of the, one of the later verses. <clears throat> I guess we did sing verse 8, didn't we? No? Okay. Uh, verse 8. His way at first may seem too hard, too steep, and full of sorrow. Yet peace e'en now is its reward, and bliss in God's tomorrow. Who through the narrow gate doth press, an inner peace will he possess, and very joy in living. The broader way at first may seem as through a pleasant pasture, but farther on, great dangers teem, and ends in dark disaster. In righteous anger God will cast into great agony at last the unrepentant sinner. So what does that narrow gate, what does that narrow way mean? Many have tried to impose their will on what that means. Some have tried to bring about an outward conformity as though that were the definition of the narrow way. That never seems to work over the long term and often will lead to uh, exactly the hardness of heart and the evil fruit that Christ warns about later on 
in this chapter. Others have tried to make the narrow way as, as be, being just something of a, um, a mental ascent. The reformers were really big on that, and so they coined these Latin phrases, um, sola scriptura, uh, scripture alone, grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, or no, have I got that wrong, right? By, yeah, by faith alone, through, through grace alone. The idea being that we are not saved of works, and we agree with that. That is not, Scripture is very clear. By grace are ye saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. But one of the things these reformers missed, and one of the distinctions we need to keep, because we are not um, a, uh, an evangelical um, denomination, we don't come from the root of the reformers, we come from a different root. For them, mental assent is what they equaled faith, and that was enough. And from that approach springs the doctrine of the carnal Christian. The idea that mental assent is enough. I made a decision once, and I believe I was sincere, therefore I am saved. And some will even take that on to mean, therefore, I can never be lost, which Scripture does not teach. So where is the narrow way in that? It's conveniently missing. Because many would be okay with the idea of a narrow gate, a narrow definition. But the walking on the narrow way, that's something a little different. What exactly does that mean? Christ said many times through the Gospels, take up your cross and follow me. That is the narrow way. Interestingly enough, the narrow way has nothing to do with anyone else. It's you. It's you completely and totally identifying with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. As one man once said, you knew something about a man with a cross on his shoulder. He was going somewhere and he wasn't coming back. The cross ruled his destiny. There was no bargaining with the cross. There was no um, uh, dickering. There was no deal making. The cross ruled his destiny. He was going to his execution. That was it. Now, if you think about those words of Christ, bearing the cross has nothing to do with putting something on a necklace around your neck or identifying with a portion of the political spectrum, say, or even going to church on a Sunday. Does the cross rule your life? That's a hard thing. That's a hard thing for me. It's much easier to make the narrow way about, say, outward appearance or ticking the boxes on some Christian fundamentals. It now becomes a day-to-day, hour-by-hour decision. But Jesus told us something else. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
The thing that makes the cross painful to us is our love of self. When we can set aside self-love, then, like Christ, we can clearly see the joy that is set before us. And the burden will become light. He promises it. I found this in my own life, too. I think a mark of Christian maturity is, uh, can, can, be, can be found, at least one of them, can be found in, in the ease with which we drop things that we know that the Lord is not pleased with. So as I travel through my own life and as I, as I, as I look at the things where I spend my time, perhaps, or, or where I spend my money, how, I use, how, my, how my thoughts are directed, that's a big one. That will tell me how mature I am and how, how much I'm, I'm, I'm conforming myself to the image of Christ. And the interesting thing is, it's such a blessed contrast to the way that it was before I was saved. And let me just quickly paint a comparison for you. I was very conscious of my sin while I was still unconverted. I remember mentally beating myself up every time I failed and promising again and again I would do better next time. And then finding how quickly I forgot and how, how quickly my love for God grew cold. And I simply ignored him because the, the pleasures of sin that were in front of me for the season were more enticing than any kind of long-term benefit that he was offering. But with the surrender that accompanied, that, that, was, that was my repentance, the, the, the breaking that I experienced under the hand of God. Now, the things that I set aside, they lose their taste. It's not, a, it's not a, uh, um, something that is a great struggle. Once I realize that God has something better for me, I find delight in those things, and those things that are holding me back, I willingly let them go. They're weights. They're, they're things that are slowing me down. And I don't claim to be there yet, but I'm pressing forward to that, toward that goal, as Paul himself says. You know, at times it may seem almost a, a, the narrow way may seem almost unnecessary. You know, I almost picture like, a, like it says in the, uh, in the Zion's Harp hymn about a, a broad pasture, the, 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 the broad way, right? It may seem at first that we're the only one concerned about this, this narrow way and people are crisscrossing it in front of us and going off in all directions and it seems fine. It seems... Uh, brings you to the point almost of thinking, well, is this really necessary? Am I, what's the problem? I'm looking around. When I, when I focus on Christ, it all snaps into clarity for me. When I realize the way that he trod, when I look for his footprints, I realize, yes, this is the narrow way. And really, there are few that are going on it. One of the things that attracts people from off of the narrow way are, are hunger for carnal things. And it's no accident, I think, that the next verse, verse 15, simply says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ravening is, is, is voraciously hungry. 
And we look around at our, our culture. It's, it's defined by never having enough. A million isn't enough, a billion is better. A billion isn't enough, multiple billions are better. Um, uh, one, <laughs> one channel on the TV isn't enough, we need more. And now we're into streaming and there's, I mean, there's, there's just a, a plethora of shows. I remember in high school there was, you know, one or two kind of blockbuster shows that everyone talked about. Now there's all kinds of miniseries and stuff, and I don't follow any of it really, but there's never enough. It's not like anyone says, whoa, 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 we have enough content now, guys. Let's just stop for a while. There's always a race for more. And when people bring that carnal attitude into the church and try to mix it with Christianity to use the ways of the world, that doesn't mix with the narrow road. It never did and it never will. The narrow road will always be defined by few. I, of course, never met Billy Graham. I don't even know much about him all, all, that, all that much. I just know something about his crusades and so on. And he, he, he filled stadiums with people. And I'm not going to say anything about what he preached or, or his style. I'm not questioning that some were positively affected and perhaps even found the narrow way as a result. But the scripture tells us to look for fruit. And what was the fruit of those huge stadium-filling crusades? Did it produce a more godly society? Or was it only maybe half? The gate is narrow, but then after that, do what you like. Pick the flavor of Christianity that best appeals to you with very little concern for the narrow road. The next section talks to us about fruit, good fruit and evil fruit. And this, this is something, you know, at this time of year, it's really easy to think about it because all you have to do is walk out into an apple orchard and see the apples ripening. And you can see some trees are just full of it, full of apples. So full they're dropping them on the ground and the wasps and insects are having a feast too. And I think about my own life. Am I bearing good fruit? How much fruit am I bearing? Do people have to poke around and look under leaves to try to find the little bit of fruit that I have or is it obvious? You know, a, a tree that doesn't, doesn't bear fruit, the Bible tells us very quickly, or right, he, right here, what happens to that, to that fruit. If it doesn't bring forth good fruit, it's hewn down. And even if it underproduces, sometimes that tree is, is taken out. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm just talking about in an orchard. That space could be better given to a tr another tree that would bear better fruit. I think that's a... A question for all of us. What kind of fruit are we bearing, first of all? But then how much are we bearing? And is it something that people have to really search for to find? Or is it obvious? Is our bounty obvious to all? Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Christ then teaches something that 
even even now to, to me today it's 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 hard to fully get my head around many will say to me in that day lord lord have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works wow I like to count myself among the few. I believe that I am saved. I've never prophesied, at least other than preaching, which is one definition of prophecy. But I think the prophecy here might be something supernatural because of the way that it's grouped with other things. I've never cast out a devil. In fact, I don't know that I've ever seen someone that's demon-possessed. I have friends that have seen that in, in, in other places, but... I, for myself, I have not seen it. In thy name done many wonderful works. I've had some prayers answered, but healings or some kind of a miracle? No, I can't say that that's something I've done either. And yet to these people, Christ says, I profess unto them, I never knew you. Now, I could be hard on myself, right? And, and look at those things and say, well, I've never done those things. I don't know. Where, where does that leave me? The knowing of Christ, I believe, is attached to what he said before. The narrow gate and the narrow way. How are we walking? To me, the greatest shame is when those that take the name of Christ upon themselves and even profess that name to unbelievers and to multitudes, and then it comes out that they themselves in their own life were horrible sinners, ravening wolves. I would not want to be in their shoes on Judgment Day. If the Lord says this about ones that have done miracles in his name, what will he say to the ones that have fleeced the flock or behaved like a wolf? Now we can say, well, I never did that, but are you walking the narrow way? Brother, sister, are you walking the narrow way? Don't think you can check that box just simply because of the way you dress or where you come from, or what your background was, or even what your uh, conversion experience was like. That's only the gate. Walking the narrow way is what we're called to do. And that's something that involves only us. I heard it said once that Christ came to take away the veil that separated us from the holy place so we could enter in to the holy place unashamed. He tore that veil in two. But we, with our self-sins, have sewed another veil and put it in its place. And we block off our access to the holy place because of that veil of self. That gave me a lot of pause. Hopefully it's something that you'll think about as well. What, you know, we're, we're easiest on ourselves, aren't we? Hardest on other people's, but easiest on ourselves. We're quick to excuse our, our, our foibles and faults. We're quick to excuse our own mistakes. We're quick to expect mercy. But we often withhold it from other people. That's not walking the narrow way. That is not bearing good fruit. 
Christ concludes with this short parable that's a very popular children's song in our Sunday schools. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rains descended and the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house and it fell not because it was founded on a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man now. So the difference was not in the hearing. That was the same in both cases. But the doing. Don't think you can explain away this parable for yourself by saying, well, I built my house on Jesus the rock. That's not what Christ says here. This parable was specifically to teach us that if we are not doing what he says, we're building on sand. It has nothing to do with what you're hearing uh, Sunday morning. We're all here hearing, but some could very well be building on sand while some build on a rock. Christianity, especially North American Christianity, has has sold its followers, I believe, to a large extent, a false bill of goods. They've told them that it's enough to make a decision once. You were sincere, you believed on Jesus, you built your house on the rock. No one can shake you off that. It's true that Jesus says no one can pluck them from my Father's hand, but you've got to be staying in the Father's hand. You need to be doing those things that he says. Mental assent is never enough as far as God is concerned. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Brothers and sisters, if we cease to be astonished with Christ's doctrines, we're not living them. If you lose your sense of wonder at the Son of God come in the flesh to speak to us the things of God, you're building on sand, you're missing it. And if, after hearing the word this morning, you're looking for someone else to apply it to, you've missed it again. You build your house on the rock by doing what Christ said. That's what he said, not what I said. May the Lord impress these things upon our hearts. May we remember them in the upcoming week. May we apply them to ourselves. And may we be found at the end to have built upon a rock. May the Lord add to whatever was lacking. Amen. We've heard a sobering word this morning, a cutting word, but that it is often the way it is with the truth. It hurts at first. It uh, wakes us up. How many of us would really appreciate a doctor that would just make us feel good and say some something inane and, and not really the truth of our condition because really Jesus said these words because of the danger that people were in there is a path that leads to destruction and everyone apart from God is going on it there is a, a, a judgment at the end of the world where all will stand before the king and answer for whether they have submitted to his lordship this is life and death this is serious and so 
The truth here needs to speak to each one of us. It needs to cut. But this is also a joyous word. As it was noted too, this is also a path in which there is life and peace and joy for the believer, the one that follows. It's not a path of of this constant questioning and doubting. When we stray from that path, it is one of conviction and of sharp pain as we realize we've hurt the Lord that we love, the Lord that saved us, the Lord that died for us. But it is a life of joy and, and, and peace. And I, and I would like the, the one outside of Christ, the one that is not walking on that way, to understand that. One thing that came clear to me this morning is that the difference is one of, of self-love. That those that said, Lord, Lord, have we we've done all these things in your name, they didn't really acknowledge him as Lord, did they? He ne- they never knew him. They never, it was all about them. Those works, all those things they did, those great things, it was self-love that was motivating that. And that's why Jesus said, I never knew you. That was really a work of iniquity. That was evil that you were doing. But the one who loves the Lord, above all, he's going to follow where the Lord leads. And it will be a straight path. It will be difficult and thorny at times, but it will be a path of joy and peace. Let me just read the final uh, two verses, five and six, not the final verses, but verses five and six from 106, which I think encapsulate what we've heard this morning. If thou to life wouldst find the way, then search the scriptures ever. They show that through Christ's death, man may have life that endeth never, Lo, on the cross his life he gave, and then was laid into the grave because of thy transgressions. If thou wouldst own the gift of grace and heaven's joy inherit, then walk by faith before his face, led by the Lord's own spirit. Thou must with Christ be crucified, and all thy sins and all thy pride upon his cross must perish. That is the way to eternal life. May the Lord give us that grace to take up our cross this week. My friend outside of Christ, embrace that cross and lose yourself in Jesus Christ. That concludes this service.